This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri, and we have an awesome episode for you today, again, where we're going to get to talk to another author who focused on one of the, if not the most famous series of Italian movies, uh, The Godfather. We're going to dive into that in a minute. Dolores, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Anthony. I really loved talking to Tom Santopietro, and I really loved his books as well. I think that his story, which he writes about in The Godfather Effect, along with, of course, writing about the movies, is very similar to the story of a, possibly, you know, a lot of our listeners in the sense that for the beginning of his life, the first 20 or so years, he really didn't identify at all as Italian-American. It was this part of his family that he just felt did, had nothing to do with him. And what's really interesting is that for all the debate surrounding the Godfather movies, you know, like whether they're stereotypical, they give a bad image of Italian-Americans, for somebody like Tom, they were the gateway into his culture. They were his gateway back into being Italian-American. So it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. But before we dive into that interview, we have a big announcement to make. We have officially partnered with the National Italian American Foundation, also known as NIAF. They have become an official sponsor of the Italian American podcast. And if you don't know NIAF, you should know NIAF. They are a wonderful nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. that serves as a huge resource for the Italian American community. They preserve the Italian American heritage and culture. They promote and inspire a positive image and legacy of Italian Americans, which is so important. And they work hard to strengthen and empower ties between the United States and Italy. You can check out everything about NIAF at NIAF.org. That's N-I-A-F.org. And what we're going to do on the beginning of each of our episodes going forward is just kind of give you a little news section about things that they have going on because they have so many awesome events and programs that you may want to get involved in. I mean, it's just an amazing organization. Dolores and I are both members, and we are so happy to have this partnership. And with that, I'm going to let Dolores tell you a little bit about some of the upcoming events that NIAF is putting on. Yes, echoing, Anthony, your sentiments. I'm really excited to be a part of this and to be able to share the upcoming events with our listeners. And we really encourage you to attend these events, which are, by all accounts, a lot of fun and filled with a real Italian-American community feel. So to begin, NIAF has partnered with the White House Historical Association, for an internationally themed symposium exploring the deep connection between Italian and American culture, architecture, and more at the White House. Hosted in partnership with the Embassy of Italy, Italy in the White House will take place on March 2nd from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Historic Decatur House. Tickets are available through Eventbrite, but you can visit niaf.org and click on the events tab. And we'll also link to the page on our show notes for this episode. Lastly, start spreading the news. The Italians are taking over the Big Apple. Join the National Italian American Foundation in New York City on April 28th at 6.30 p.m. for a memorable evening at the legendary Cipriani 42nd Street, celebrating our heritage at the New York Gala. NIAF will honor distinguished Italian-Americans, including the new Baseball Hall of Fame inductee, Mike Piazza. And if Mike Piazza isn't enough of a draw for you, 
Anthony and I will also be at the gala producing a special gala episode. So please come to the gala. It's going to be a really classy night and lots of fun. And please come say hello to us if you are there. Tickets and sponsorship opportunities are available now at niaf.org forward slash NYC. Thanks, Loris. And I don't know if people will come to see us over Mike Piazza yet, but <laughs> maybe, maybe in the future. <laughs> but no, we're excited about teaming up with NIAF. We think that there's a lot of things that we both do that are very in line with each other to try to promote Italian-American culture. That's the reason we started the podcast, and that's the reason that we want to grow it and help them to continue to do the great things that they do. So with that, I'm going to just kick it back to Dolores. Dolores, why don't you give our listeners a quote that'll bring us into the interview with Tom? Today's quote is from Mario Puzzo. I believe in America. America's made my fortune. Just one note before we jump into the interview with Tom. We did have a couple of minor sound issues during the interview. Again, they're minor and we felt that rather than deleting those clips, because they were really, really great information from Tom, that we just left them in there. So bear with us on those points, and we'll try to ensure that going forward, that does not happen again. All right, let's do it. Now it's time for the main segment of our show today. We're really excited to have Tom Santo Pietro with us. Tom is the author of five books, The Sound of Music Story, The Godfather Effect, Changing Hollywood, America, and Me, Sinatra in Hollywood, Considering Doris Day, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and The Importance of Being Barbara. A frequent media commentator, including in the PBS documentary, The Italian Americans, Tom conducts monthly interviews for Barnes & Noble and lectures on classic films. Over the past 30 years, he has managed more than two dozen Broadway shows. Tom's books have been featured in the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, The Atlantic, Library Journal, The Boston Globe, The Miami Herald, The New York Post, and numerous newspapers across the country. And prior to becoming an author, Tom worked as a tennis pro and has spent 25 years as a manager of over 30 Broadway shows, including Phantom of the Opera, A Few Good Men, Jersey Boys, and Masterclass. Tom, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. We've been reading your literature. We've been watching the videos on your website, which are excellent, and we'll share all that with our listeners. But before we dive into your career and, and your writing and some of the other projects you've worked on, maybe you can start out a little bit by telling our listeners about your experience growing up as an Italian-American. I know that your uh, your grandparents came from Italy. Maybe you could take us back there and, and tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I think, you know, the issue of growing up Italian, Italian-American, is really what led me to write the book about The Godfather, because what I wanted to really look at and analyze is the fact that with my surname, Santo Pietro, you know, that is certainly as Italian as it gets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but my middle name is Parker, which is my mother's maiden name. And that is as waspy as it gets. Mm. And so I grew up half Italian, half English in really what was a very waspy world of uh, private schools and country clubs. And so I had no overt sense of being Italian. I mean, I, I was very close to my grandparents. They lived on the same street, but it didn't inform my self-identity. And 
what really happened, and this is how I wanted to start the Godfather book, is the life-changing moment for me was when I went to see The Godfather Part Two. I was 20 years old at the time. And exactly 10 minutes into the film, and your listeners, uh, I bet, are familiar uh, with the film, there is a shot of the young Don Corleone coming to America, and his the ship sails in front of the Statue of Liberty, and the music swells up. And it, it sounds like hyperbole, but it was a life-changing moment for me because I looked at that on the screen, and I thought, that's my grandfather. And I thought, that is Orazio Santo Pietro, 13 years old, arriving in America, doesn't speak English, 20 lira in his pocket. And I thought, he made my life possible. And it turned my world upside down. And that was the start, really the start of my feeling Italian and being so proud of being Italian. Wow, that's awesome. Get goosebumps from that. Me too. I I find that such a compelling story. And I actually wonder, Tom, since you've written The Godfather Effect and you wrote about that experience, have you found people telling you that that was a similar experience for them? I, I have. And everybody's story is very different. And that's what makes it so interesting. I always say The Godfather Effect is maybe not the book of mine that sold the most, but it is absolutely the book that generated the most personal letters and emails. And I love that. And People have written me and said, because I talk about the family dinners around the, my grandparents' dining room table on Sundays, and they say, oh, that was my family. Or the ones I like, in a way, best of all, are when the letters start, oh, Tom, I'm Eastern European, not Italian, but you were describing my family because we're a nation of immigrants. And I think that's the universal level on which we all connect. Even though we're Italian-American, a lot of Italian-Americans didn't – weren't connected with that for a certain period of their life until, you know, something happened. And in your case, you just described what it was. But it's it's interesting because we hear that from a lot of people that they don't necessarily identify with their Italian heritage or, or culture until a certain point. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a very important issue. And I talk about it in both the Godfather book and – also in the Sinatra book, because I think a huge thing for all of us as Italian-Americans is the image of Italian-Americans in the mass media. And, you know, I wanted to make the point that in terms of Hollywood films, because I'm a film historian, so I, I look at and love all these old films, but the image of Italian-Americans was uh, one of two things. You were either Scarface you know, uh, violent and not terribly uh, literate, or you were really kind of what I call the ultimate Uncle Tom symbol for Italian-Americans, which is the organ grinder with the monkey. I mean, literally, you see that in old films. So when we are all young and we're looking at these images on the screen, you know, I, I as a youngster thought, that has nothing to do with my life. I couldn't identify with it. But when I saw The Godfather... And, and it's very complicated with the images of, you know, gangsters. But these were Italian-Americans in control of their own destiny. Nobody spoke with an accent like a disa. You know, they were smart. Uh, Michael Corleone was college educated. So it tweaked it in a whole different direction. And just one other comment on, on self-image, because I wrote 
as you mentioned, a big book on Sinatra called Sinatra in Hollywood, where I want to look at Sinatra, the film actor. And, you know, he's the most famously proud Italian-American of them all. It's one of the great things about Frank. But he himself said when he was a young boy growing up in Hoboken, New Jersey, he would listen to a radio show called Life with Luigi. And Luigi, the main character, was, in fact, a guy who talked like this, you know, made all the faux pas in the English language, was kind of a buffoon, played by a non-Italian. And Frank said, I used to listen to that show. I'd laugh my head off and then I'd hate myself for liking it. So even Frank had those issues. So basically you feel it took you until kind of your late teenage years to be able to identify with that side of you because of those images. Yeah, I think the the images are really overpowering. And remember the conversation, you know, people made fun of Italians all the time. And to a certain degree, even today, and I say this in the book, in some ways, you know, Italian-Americans are the one group it's still okay to make fun of. Well, not so much in my view. You know, I really speak out about that now. So, um, it, this is a complicated ongoing issue because in one, in some ways we've made huge progress. And then in other ways, of course, you know, I look at a show like Jersey Shore and I'm just horrified by it. Once you had that moment that you described and you're watching The Godfather and you start to identify more with your background, was it at that time that you started to do more kind of digging as far as what your background was and kind of where you came from? Is that something that you got interested in after that point? I think what happened for me is that it was a very gradual process. You know, that that was kind of a lightning bolt moment for me, but it's not like the next day I went out and researched the family roots on, on, for everybody. I, it just, it, as happened so often in life for all of us, it's a gradual accumulation of details. And I think also especially losing my grandparents when they died Because I had been close to them, it gave me even more of a sense of pride. And so then over the years, if it built up, you know, kind of like a mosaic uh, bit by bit, then after I'd written a couple of books, I thought, I'm ready now. Now I want to investigate. Because all of us and the two of you and everybody listening, we're all, until the day we draw our, our last breath, we're all answering two questions. And those two questions are, who am I? And where do I fit in? And I was now ready to take that fully on board. Good questions to live by. So you talked about Sinatra. I mean, you have The Godfather and you have Sinatra. Talk a little bit about Sinatra a little bit more. What drove you to really explore him? So many reasons. Sinatra is, uh, he's really by far, you know, my favorite singer. I think he's an extraordinary actor. And so for me, the great thing about writing about Frank was it was operating on two levels. One is as a film historian and a, and a guy that works on Broadway shows, you know, I was just in awe of his abilities as an entertainer. The second level was as I became interested in issues of Italian, being Italian-American, I thought, oh, it's unbelievable how he spoke to Italian-Americans at a time when uh, we had so few positive images and uh, why he was so important. You know, people say, and it's really true, that it, at a certain point, if you walked into an Italian-American household, uh, there would be uh, 
two pictures on the wall. One would be the Pope and the other one would be Frank. (laughs) His shadow looms large. Yeah, you describe Sinatra at one point, um, actually in The Godfather Effect, you describe him as, quote, for all his pride and heritage, he conceived of himself as American, occasionally as Italian-American, but decidedly not Italian. I found that really interesting. Could you talk more about that? A big part of his persona was he always identified as American, but he wanted people to be aware of the fact that he had Italian roots. And think of the fact, you know, the the concept of hyphenated identity has really only been become so strong in the past, let's say, 20, 25 years, you know, near the end of Frank's life. And so he identified as American. But what he was saying to people was instead of hiding the fact that he had Italian heritage, he embraced it because think back Hollywood in the 40s uh, when Frank came up, you had to, in effect, hide your identity. Edward G. Robinson was born Emanuel Goldenberg. Danny Kaye was born Daniel Kaminsky. They said, change your name, change your name. They, If you can believe it, they said to Frank Sinatra, your name should be Frankie Satin. He said, no way. The name is Sinatra. Frank, well, then he inserted an obscenity, which I won't say. Frank <laughs> blank Sinatra. So he was saying, not only am I not going to hide it, I'm proud of it and I'm going to embrace it. And that was a huge message at a time when you still had the uh, Uncle Tom image of Italian-Americans on film. So maybe what you're getting at in that is that he didn't necessarily consider himself Italian, but some kind of what, like new hybrid image that he's presenting? I think that's really true. He was saying, I am American. There's a song called The House I Live In, which is about tolerance in America. And he recorded that five different times over his career. That's about being an American, not a hyphenated American. But at the same time, he's saying, I'm an American, but I am a particular kind of American, one with Italian roots. And he's saying, the great thing about Frank that everybody likes is he said, you don't want me to sit at your table? Fine. I'm going to set my own table. You're going to want to join it. And maybe or maybe not, I'll let you sit there. I love that. What a great way to phrase that. I mean, that sounds to me, now that we're actually talking about it, very Italian-American. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Like, I feel like I grew up with people like that, you know, who would have said that to you and did say that to the world, you know? That's right. That's well said. So I think that kind of um, self-assertion is uh, particular to Italian-Americans, but also... I think why Frank became so huge, it's not just that Italian-Americans liked him, especially at the beginning. He spoke to uh, urban immigrants of all stripes, you know, people who were considered outsiders. And there was Frank with such a strong image. So it expanded beyond Italians to everybody who felt like uh, they had been excluded. And, uh, you know, in in screen terms, because he was such a huge, huge star, one of the biggest ever in Hollywood, He invented also this new persona, which in the book I call, he was the tough, tender guy. Mm -hmm. He was a tough guy, but he was not afraid to show his vulnerable, if you want to call it feminine side. And that's a new screen image and and was enormously appealing to people. I definitely want um, to move on to talk a bit more about The Godfather. But before we kind of do that, Sinatra, you know, he's still so popular with younger generations, you know, in a way that 
very few, if no, right, other older actors and uh, musicians are. Could you just Why do you think that is? I, I think you're absolutely right. When I talk at schools, and I actually give talks at a number of schools, I always start out because, you know, these kids are 16 years old. They all look at me like, you know, I rode in on a covered wagon. <laughs> you know, I always start out and I say, okay, how many of you know who Frank Sinatra is? And even in these kind of tough inner city schools, I would say 85% of them, it's amazing. Then the follow-up question I always have is, how many of you know who Bing Crosby is? And not one person raises their hand. Wow. And, you know, Bing was the biggest star in the world, but he doesn't have that cultural currency the way Frank does. And I think it's Frank's edge and street attitude. You know, Bono called Frank the original rock and roller. And just things like the fact that at the Yankees games, you know, New York, New York is played all the time. It just he's in the air still. It's remarkable for somebody who would be 100 and, and died 18 years ago. Yeah, you certainly had something that, that's just stock with our culture, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving on to The Godfather, your book, The Godfather Effect, it, it's really a vast commentary on the rise and fall, if you will, of the Italian-American experience. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why the trilogy serves that discussion in particular so well? Uh, sure. I, I think what the trilogy does is it really charts the immigrant experience coming to this country, trying to establish a toehold. Granted, the Corleones did it in terms of organized crime, but we can talk about that in a minute. But what it was like trying to make a place for yourself, or to reference what I said earlier, make a place for yourself at the table. And it was all about assimilation and wanting to be a part of the American conversation. And you, what you see in those films is that when you obtain that success and you do assimilate, at the same time, the downside is you lose the connection to the genuine ethnic roots. And this was uh, played out in my family and I suspect really in all families in America because when you become a part of, let's call it the establishment, you're further away from the real sense of being Italian. And so in the Godfather films, to be specific to your question, it's the difference you see that part one opens with the wedding, Connie's wedding, that joyous celebration, which is so Italian and so life affirming. And, you know, I thought I've been to those weddings. And then in part two, it opens with the first communion of Michael's son. And he has this mansion, he's in Tahoe, but there's absolutely nothing genuinely Italian about it, symbolized by the fact that they try to get the band to play the Tarantelle, and instead the closest they can come up with is Pop Goes the Weasel. Mm -hmm. So all of the genuine, and it's the unraveling. And it happened in my family because as everybody became extremely well-educated, we all scattered to different parts of the country. And... Uh, in New York City, where I live, you know, it, little Italy has shrunk so much. It's really just a few blocks. And when I'm down there, I can observe. It's a fascinating sight. You see people from the suburbs who are clearly Italian-American. They're driving up in their big SUVs. They're getting out. And it's like they, they're wandering in search of the genuine roots, which, of course, get more and more faded with every passing year.
that's the universal experience. It's we're a success, but we've lost something in the process. So you beautifully write about that and you just beautifully summed it up. And I actually find that symbolism so compelling, right? And when you see the opening of Godfather, uh, the original Godfather, and I think almost everybody who's seen it, that that wedding, it's just, you know, and I think you write about it in the book, you say, you know, we wanted to be guests at that wedding, at Connie's wedding. What I'm wondering and what we talk about so often on the podcast is, can we do anything to reverse that or at least bring some of it back in to our lives today? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think on one hand, the answer is no, because you can't repeat the past. You know, that's the message of Great Gatsby. But what we can do is give it a modern twist. And I think so in my own personal terms, just this sort of podcast, you know, it's a way of connecting with a sense of being Italian-American and taking pride in it. Now, a podcast my grandparents could no more have thought of a podcast than Flight of the Moon. Mm-hmm. But this is our new way of communication. It's unfortunate that we don't all gather around the kitchen table anymore to share stories because we're a very, uh, we're a people that are very, uh, our oral tradition is, is very strong. Um, we don't do that anymore, but this is a great way of connecting or uh, just through the book, the Italian-American groups when I have spoken to and met people there. So we search around for new forms. I mean, I'm still searching, but it's, there's a new way to do it, but that the old way is gone. Or as I say in the book, you know, the great thing about that old way was, and I remember this with my grandparents' generation, Everything was a cause for the family gathering together and celebrating. And so it was like, oh, we got a new washing machine. Come over for coffee and cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we smile and laugh about it now. But I think, oh, that sense of family warmth. You know, it's what we all want. We all want the feeling of being connected. Yeah, I I think that you kind of hit it on the head there, Tom, and that we can't you know, lament over all the stuff that we don't do anymore, that things that have changed. We need to try to create new traditions. We need to try to utilize the opportunities that are here today for us to try to reinvigorate it in whatever way we can. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to, and we do talk about it a lot because it's an important thing that, you know, there's certainly some of the sense of community has been lost and different with different families and in different areas. I mean, we were, Dolores and I went to the Little Italy to the Italian American Museum and Dr. Chelsea told us the same thing. He said, you know, we're reduced to a couple of blocks down here, but we still just have to try to celebrate it. And there's different ways to do it, whether it is a podcast or a book or whatever ways we can do it, if anything, is what's going to continue to keep it going. And, and like I, Dolores and I always say, there's still Italian immigrants that came in the 1900s that we can talk to, but there isn't a lot of them around. So we need to try to talk to them now. We need to, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book, whether it's a documentary, whatever the case may be. I mean, these are some of the things that, you know, we'll kind of be able to feed off of and our kids and their kids, et cetera, can continue to feed off of these things. I think that's very well said, Anthony. And I think just as you said that, something popped into my head, which is if there were, you know, this would obviously take a lot of money, but it could be done on a small scale. Just as Steven Spielberg put his money into videotaping survivors of the Holocaust while they were still alive, this extraordinary project, just filming interviews with thousands of survivors, if there were, you know, interviews with 
Italian Americans, the that generation who came over, so that there really was a, an extensive, uh, in effect, a video library to access. It, it would be a remarkable resource. I know it would take a lot of money, but perhaps where there's a will, there's a way. It's a terrific idea. Certainly, Anthony and I create the podcast very much with the idea of making it like almost like a time capsule. However long its run is, you know, whatever it is in the end, that it'll be here for future generations to tap into and to listen to and to hear about their heritage and their culture and where they've come from and, and all these wonderful things that time, as we've been talking about, can really can erode. And you're doing it in 21st century terms, which is great, because as Anthony said, we can't just lament the past, we can't recapture it, but we figure out new ways to uh, make it evolve. And uh, you never know who you're reaching with the podcast. And that's a very cool thing. Yeah, that's true. Hey, Tom, uh, I'm reading a lot myself about the immigration and when Italians came over. And I think the one thing that you take away from, from all of this is that they survived I mean, obviously not every one of them, but but I mean like as a culture, as a community, they came with nothing. They survived and you get some of that feeling and some of your writing and just talking to you. Do you feel that that you feel that in you sometimes like when you're going through projects, when you're going through challenges, do you feel that heritage and you feel like some of that's been passed on to us? I do. You know, because there's such a strong sense of family in the, amongst Italian-Americans, I have a sense of wanting to honor my grandparents who sacrificed so much to give me a better life. And the way I can do that is by working as hard as I possibly can, and which is a way of honoring them because they worked so hard. And I freely admit, we're a far tougher stock than I am, than our generation is. There's no question with what they survived. I say my grandparents came to this country not speaking any English, knowing almost nobody, and made this life for themselves. That was so hard, just the trip on that horrible boat to America. And, you know, here I am, and I whine when my internet connection isn't fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's a completely different lifestyle that they made possible. In my own terms, it's a way of saying thank you to them. Beautiful. In the Godfather films, and you write about this, the recreation of the Little Italy's was very compelling for you, right? And you describe it as feeling like, for instance, when you're seeing, uh, I think it's in part two, when um, the younger Vito Corleone is in his new olive oil offices. And the way it looks, you feel almost as if you're looking at, let's say, if, if I can take this poetic license as like, like a photo album of your own ancestors, which I felt when I first saw the films and every time I've seen them and probably didn't articulate it that way. So did you talk a little bit more about that, the actual recreation of life in a time we didn't belong to and how that just resonates so strongly with Italian-Americans? Yes, I think that what what those films do, because they are so impeccably made, is they provide us all with a collective sense memory. It's the closest we're going to get to what it was really like. And because we know the research, uh, I know from uh, my book, the research they did was so phenomenal on exactly what it looked like, what the textures were, what the smells were. 
And so through the collective talents, you know, of the director, the screenwriter, particularly the production designer, the cinematographer, they all give us the closest any of us in the 21st century are going to get to what it was really like. And it's for me, it's such I had such a visceral response to that. Again, that's the, as you said, that's the beginning of part two, because I thought that's what it was like for my grandparents. That's what they experienced. And uh, that's what film can do at its greatest. It can provide us with a, um, a more comprehensive understanding. And that's a gift to all of us, those, that part of those films for us as Italian-Americans. So I personally feel like I've had an obsession with that all my life, even as a little kid. Don't really know why. And I've talked about it again and again on the show. There's just something inside me that wants to know that. It wants to know what it was like for my ancestors, even, you know, and my parents were the first generation to come here. So even back in Italy, do you want to talk a little bit about why you think or what you think that is within us? You know, I've described it as intangible, you know, amorphous, mysterious, all these words. I feel like I'll always kind of struggle to describe it. That's a very good question and multi-layered. I think the reason why people have such a strong reaction, you're talking about it in your own very personal terms, is mm-hmm. I say this in speeches. The novelist E.M. Forster, Passage to India, you know, not Italian-American, but he, <laughs> that great statement, only connect. I think about that a lot. That's what we all want. We want it on a personal level. We want it in a broader cultural Italian-American terms. And we want that sense of not being alone. And when you see that and you realize where we came from and what your parents and grandparents went through, it is a way of connecting with them. It's a way of uh, not feeling alone. We're in this together because we all have moments in our lives where uh, my phrase is where the ground shifts beneath our feet. Mm. Everything changes. What happened to my job? Why did that relationship go south? We all have so many advantages being Americans, but even life can still be scary and dark. And if we have a sense of being connected, that we are in this together, and that the films can provide us with that sense, you know, in pop culture terms, that is a great, great gift that we're being given. I'd also think it's why your descriptions of your family and kind of how it changed throughout the generations And it's one that a lot of us can identify with. And again, the parallels with the Godfather and the celebrations. It's kind of why we want those celebrations. And we we mourn for that time when the family is all lived close to each other. It's just wanting that connection. And it's also why I think I'm always asking that question of, I know you can't recreate the past, but I'm always trying to get closer to how do we almost remedy this? I mean, I almost see it as an illness for us to be so isolated and separate because it doesn't heal us. It hurts. So these, these celebrations that our ancestors in, you know, for many of us, even just a generation that we grew up with, I feel like I woke up one day and our parties were suddenly more American than they'd ever been. Yes. Oh, that's well said. That's a, I could steal that phrase for my next. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You know, it it was, it was a shock. You know, it was like we growing up, it was always just as you described them. And just as you see more or less in the Godfather films, loud, 
boisterous, a lot of drinking, a lot of food, kids running around in their socks. Like, and then one day everybody was very civilized. Yeah. And, and it was boring. Yeah. And it's, it, it is more boring. There's, <laughs> no, there's no question about it because we're all so tastefully assimilated now. That's the horrible <laughs> thing about time. You know, we can't defeat it. And uh, I understand why you have that sense because, you know, if somebody gave me the choice, I've thought about this, of a billion dollars, billion with a B, or one more hour at my grandparents' dinner table where everybody was healthy and just to be with them again. It's no contest. I just want the hour with my family. You just brought tears to my eyes 100%. I think about that all the time because it's such a fleeting moment. The odd thing is in my mind, you know, I guess it's the writer of me in me, that moment is when I'm 10 years old. And I'm at my grandparents' dinner table, not my aunts or uncles or our house. It's my grandparents. And we are all there. Everybody is healthy and everybody is laughing and it's Christmas dinner. And that's the moment I want again. Yeah. So. I completely understand that. I mean, and I think that it's a great shock of adulthood to learn that it doesn't stay that way. It sure doesn't. It's that so fleeting. It's so fleeting. I mean, that I, I mean, I can almost feel like I can mark it in some ways in my mind. It came as a very great shock. You know, when you grow up nestled in this community, in this family, you're like, this is it. Like, I got it made. I don't ever need to leave this. And then it just starts to go away on its own and you can't stop it. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. But, you know, then I try to, you, you just think about the fact of, and clearly I'm older than you guys, you know, I'm grateful for what I've had. And, and that, you know, I always sort of catch myself up short with that because how fortunate that I had that sense of family that so many people don't. And uh, they live on inside of us. And I have to say for, for all my like kind of emotions that I have around this subject, I am very lucky. I mean, my mother's house still serves as like the hub and we have family night on Mondays and we all get together and we have dinner and I have a beautiful family. I mean, it's true, you know, but when you get into these conversations and also reading your book, I mean, your parallels with the Godfather and that whole decay is just, it brought up a lot of emotions in me, you know, but um, yeah, we do both Anthony and I are very lucky. We still have these big, strong Italian families. Well, what are modern solutions to that? And so one thing I think about is that when there are family gatherings, you know, and and in my case, they're much smaller now. I spent Christmas in Atlanta with my cousins, uh, but it was, you know, so great to be with them. And so you do things like we're going to sit around the table. We're going to talk to each other. There are going to be no cell phones going off. We're not texting anybody. We're not having the TV on. You know, we're going to talk to each other the way our ancestors did. And it's amazing when we all exhale and go back to those basics, you get this certain feeling of almost peace because it's another form of, of connecting. So uh, I think, you know, that's a very specific, concrete example. But gosh, in, in my case, it has really worked. Because then you're just talking the way our grandparents did and laughing about silly things. And I've learned <laughs> never discuss politics. 
<laughs> took me a while to learn that, but once I did, it was it was very smart lesson to learn. I agree. I agree. <laughs> families, especially Italian families, you can have enough trouble without bringing politics into it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Yeah, and I talked about that in the book of when, you know, I was uh, 18 and full of myself and thinking I knew so much and which, of course, I knew nothing and expressing my political opinions with which my aunts and uncles did emphatically did not agree. Yeah. It made for some very interesting Christmas dinners. <laughs> yeah, but that scene is a beautiful I mean, it's a beautiful example of right of the American coming in with the Italian. Yes. Or, or it's also like that great line in, um, I think it's the original Godfather, when all the brothers are sitting around the table, and I think Michael's just told them he's enlisted in the Marines, and Sonny just offhand looks at him and he says, would you go to college to get stupid? Yeah. Uh, haven't <laughs> we all had Italian uh, relatives that talk like Sonny does? I had people say that to me many times because I was also a very, you know, open with my opinions and I thought I knew everything. And uh, yeah, I definitely heard that more than more than twice. And I probably deserved it. (laughs) Hey, Tom, I just want to bring in your Broadway experience here for a minute to the conversation. You've you've managed many Broadway shows over the years. And I'm just wondering how or if at all it's inspired or how it's affected your writing. You mean the working on Broadway shows? Yes. Like your books, if there's any overlap there, if there's any inspiration or... Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because, you know, all of my books are in one form or another entertainment related. They're either about film or music or personalities like Sinatra. Let me just back up for a second. I'm supposed to be a lawyer. I graduated from law school and I said, I am not doing this. I am so uninterested in You know, and the story I tell to make fun of myself is that when I got the contract for my first book and they said, well, who's handling this for you? You know, who's your agent? And I said, well, you know, I went to law school. I I remember enough. I'll handle it. So they gave me the contract, which was like 15 pages long. I got to page four. (laughs) And remember, this is my new career. This is money that's coming into my pocket. I was so uninterested in my own contract that I fell asleep. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So, boy, oh boy, should I have not been a lawyer. So when I decided I wanted to work on Broadway shows, and this goes, Anthony, I'm sorry, I'm taking a long about round way to get. Oh, that's fine. But, you know, the great thing about working on Broadway shows is, I mean, first of all, it's a very interesting, crazy and exciting atmosphere. But entertainment at that level, it opens up the world. It gives you new ways of seeing life. And that really excited me. And I think, you know, because when theater is at is at its best, boy, oh boy, there's an immediate visceral connection that even films can't provide, you know, because you're there in the room with the actors. And so I think I acquired a very different worldview. And although I started out on the business side of things, eventually I thought I have got to do something creative. And in my case, it was uh, uh, writing books. So it really led directly to that. And you're currently doing um, a show on Sinatra, correct? Yes, we've been. uh, When I wrote the book, I just didn't want to do, you know, the typical book signings. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to adapt the book into a show. And so we've come up with this very unique format, at least I think it's unique, and people, other people have said that, which is I tell stories and anecdotes about Sinatra. 
And they set up the classic songs. And I worked with this terrific, very talented singer pianist named Tony Desaire, another paisano. I mean, Tony's fantastic. He's been the soloist with literally every pops orchestra across the United States. He's played at Carnegie Hall. And so we do this where I tell the stories and set up the songs, and then Tony sings and plays them. And the great thing has been we thought we were going to do it for one night to publicize my book. And seven years later, we're still doing it all around the country. So we just came from Florida, Dallas, Denver. And so if anybody is out there listening... By all means, contact us. It's great because talk about a way with connecting with audiences about Frank and also about being Italian-American. And just when people come up and talk to us after, it's so rewarding. There's that thing, only connect. And that is a great way for me to be able to connect with people. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Is is there a place people can go to find out if the show's coming to their town? or People could go to my website, which is my name, it's TomSantoPietro.com, or to Tony's website, and he's Tony Desaire, D-E-S-A-R-E.com. And I think people would really like, just go to his website and look at him in action. This guy is phenomenal. And the, the New York Times gave him a great review and said, Tony Desaire is two parts young Sinatra and one part Billy Joel. Wow. Yeah. Pretty impressive. He is excellent. If you go to Tom's website, you have a video on there, actually, of the two of you together. Exactly, yeah. My last two books, I wrote about The Godfather, and then the next book was about The Sound of Music. What I say to people when I give talks, and it makes them laugh, is that my idea of the perfect double bill is The Sound of Music followed by The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's a long way from Don Corleone to Maria von Trapp. But the currency, the common bond, which I think people maybe think about for a second, is both of those films, which are universally loved everywhere around the world, it's because they're both about family. Mm -hmm. And it's about family as your protector. And it's about family as your sanctuary. And that is the most universal feeling of all. And is that why you, you were drawn to both projects? I think so. I really think at heart because family has always mattered to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, my other joke about it is that, of course, one family solves their problems by singing show tunes and the other one by using machine guns. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the concept of family is paramount in both films. And uh, the other thing is, you know, with The Godfather, and this is the big thing I get at every one of my talks, is... Are we glorifying the non-law-abiding Italian-Americans? Is it glorifying gangsters? And the interesting thing about that question is it breaks down – I get it at every single talk. It breaks down along generational lines. People of my parents' generation, the World War II generation, are the most sensitive to that because they lived through the time when the discrimination was still so prevalent. The people of my generation, baby boomers – it doesn't bother them the same way. They look at the world in a different way because assimilation has taken hold. And then to the generation beneath me, the younger generation, it's a non-issue because they just don't even think in those terms. So that's an interesting aspect of it. But, you know, the big thing I, I say to people when they bring it up is, you know, I know the Corleones are gangsters, 
But you know what? It's a movie. There, I know there are many more Italian Americans who are CPAs. I don't want right, to watch right. a movie about a CPA. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good it, point. <laughs> not going to interest me. And I think audiences know to separate fact from fiction. And the fact that the Corleones, it's a couple of things. It's they're in control of their own destiny, which is on one level enormously appealing. It's also the fact that through the trilogy of films, Francis Ford Coppola, Italian-American, makes a very large point of saying they're criminals and this is why their world falls apart. Not just the empire, but the sense of family. And in the end, of course, Michael's daughter is killed. There's nothing worse for any family in the world. And it's been brought about because of his illegal activities. So that message is not lost. It's not glorifying the the gangsters. Uh, you know, they travel a very dark journey since from the warmth of that opening wedding scene in part one. They end up being, I mean, they end up being corrupted from the inside out. It's, Great. It, That's a perfect way of saying it. We actually talked about the generational differences with uh, Maria Lorino, and we kind of talked about exactly what you just said. And I think we're all kind of in agreement that there definitely was a generation where the anti-defamation, right, and, and those kind of images were really necessary. And it's almost like because of what that generation did, you know, my generation, it's really not something we worry about. You know, you might get offhanded remarks. I've said it before growing up. People would say, you know, is your dad in the mob? I mean, was it ridiculous? Was it a stupid question? Yeah, well, there's stupid people everywhere. I mean, and the, people say things like that. It didn't, but it didn't affect me deeply. I, I think that's absolutely right. It didn't affect you deeply. And, you know, there are idiots everywhere, including right. amongst our fellow paisanos. So I think people can sort of uh, figure it out for themselves in a lot of ways. Look, this has been great. You guys are, uh, I've really enjoyed this. Your questions are great. You're both smart, <laughs> articulate. That's enough compliments for you. <laughs> Tom, as we start to wrap up here, uh, one question I guess I'd like to ask you as we as we close out the interview is there's probably, not probably, I know that there's a lot of Italian Americans out there that have yet to identify with with their culture that are probably going through, you know, their life and they haven't made that connection yet. Is there anything you can, any message you can give them, you know, since you were there for a while before you saw that instant in The Godfather, what kind of message could you give? Oh, that's such a good and thoughtful and thought-provoking question, Anthony. Uh, I think the real question is that, or, or the way to approach it is, in figuring out, you know, who we all are as individuals, it's always helpful to look back at where we came from and what our roots were. And, you know, that leads to thinking about our parents and our grandparents. And it's not, it's not a way of saying, oh, everything used to be perfect because far from it, you know, for any of us. But I think in acknowledging where we came from, even if we wanted to leave our small town and were desperate to come to a big city, whatever the journey might have been, I think an acknowledgement of the forces that shaped us for good and for bad, I think it really leads you to appreciate, and in my case, appreciate my Italian-American roots. And so, because even when you feel the limitations of the past, and we all do in, in certain ways, 
you know, because that closeness could be taken to an extreme, could be suffocating. You just get an appreciation of how wide the world is. And if you connect with where you came from, how you came from that place, you yourself end up feeling more grounded. So in my terms, it was really film. For somebody else, it could be uh, music. It it could be family stories. But uh, you'll start, I think, people, when they analyze it, I'll use the word again, you start to feel more grounded. And that is a, a really terrific feeling. Excellent. That is awesome. Very well said. Again, Tom Santapietro. Check out his website at TomSantapietro.com. His books are the two we discussed in detail, which were The Godfather Effect and Sinatra in Hollywood. But then also Tom has three other books, Considering Doris Day, The Importance of Being Barbara, and The Sound of Music Story. And we will link to all of his books and his website on our episode page at ItalianAmericanPodcast.com. Tom, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with the audience. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed this very much. Thank you, Tom. All right, this is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to either play a recording or a story That's really going to connect you with your Italian-American background and your heritage. And in today's story segment, Tom is actually going to read an excerpt from his book, The Godfather Effect, which really touches on the heart of so much that we just talked about with Tom. La familia, the community, the warmth, and of course, the celebration. Week in and week out, holiday or not, the entire family gathered for Sunday dinners. Never mind church attendance, Sundays were were reserved for the true religion of Southern Italians, La Familia. The sharing of Sunday dinner actually resembled a religious rite, the meal itself underscoring the sense of each individual belonging to a greater communal good. Eating together represented stability, a retention of the old order in the rapidly changing world of the 1960s. If it seems a stretch to say that some sort of higher spirit seemed to move around that table, It's nonetheless true that the shared laughter did generate a sense of peace and well-being. Here we found a corner of understanding and connection amid the chaos of everyday life, the dining room table affording a last common territory before assimilation triumphed and we all went our separate ways. Even as a six-year-old, some part of me realized that my grandmother was never happier than when preparing a Sunday meal for the entire family. As she moved ceaselessly around the kitchen that constituted the center of her universe, she would happily tolerate my relentless banging of pots and pans on the floor, her severely arthritic knees somehow bothering her less when the entire family was in attendance. In the ritual of food preparation lay certainty for her daily life. Come each Sunday, the Anglo and Italian sides of my life would fully intersect for the first and only time of the week. With my father not given to attending church, My mother would take my sister and me to the Episcopal Church and Sunday School. We would then drive to my grandmother's house for a meatball sandwich, after which we would go home, only to return one hour later for a full seven-course dinner. Why the two-stop visits? I suppose Paisano Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof had it right. Tradition. My mother was undoubtedly relieved she didn't have to cook. My father was relieved he didn't have to go to church. I was relieved that homework could be delayed. 
Church of England and meatballs, all in the space of a few short hours. When we returned to my grandmother's for the complete Sunday dinner, we were greeted by the bounteous dishes of basic peasant Italian cooking, now all the rage in 21st century Manhattan. When I ate at Teresi, the hottest Italian restaurant in New York City, I found the extraordinary cooking to be sublime and almost as good as that of my grandmother. Maria Valletta Santo Pietro could make her fortune cooking her favorite dishes today, a concept she would find laughable and inconceivable in equal measure. Pasta swimming in homemade tomato sauce, meatballs, sausage, fresh Italian bread, salads of field greens, dish after dish arrived, one course flowing into another until silverware ceased clinking and plates were cleared, just in time for dessert. Great the food was, but it proved secondary to the concept of family togetherness. Multiple conversations at the same time proved the norm, with revelations of my father and his siblings as youngsters, glimpses into the past that I found simultaneously amusing and slightly disconcerting. Does any child really want to learn about his parents' youthful possibilities? What if my parents hadn't met? What if my father had married his girlfriend, Vonda? What if? What if? What if? Above all, laughter floated around the table, and I retained the sweet, silly memory of being seven and making the entire dining room laugh as I imitated President Kennedy's Boston accent. Banter about one another's foibles remained central to the conversation, and if the teasing of one another was allowed, indeed almost encouraged, just let an outsider try the same thing, and a Corleone-like protectiveness instantly emerged. When my cousin Don first brought his Irish-American fiancée Anne to meet the entire family, she immediately remarked on the laughter and non-stop talking at the table. The warmth of it all, she wistfully recalled years later. Such happiness, if only we had known. These weekly celebrations of food and family provided the opportunity so essential to the immigrant experience, the celebration of one another's existence. Here, now not in the future, and forget about the past. Let others long for the old country and La Via Vecchia. For my grandparents, the Statue of Liberty, America, was all. I would, from time to time, ask my grandmother if she wanted to go back and visit Ponte Landolfo, fixing me with a look that roughly translated as, my grandson has lost his mind. She would simply say, no, never. America is my home. America gave us a life. In George Panetta's phrase, Italian eyes are all dark with a lot of yesterdays in them. And in my grandmother's dark eyes, the yesterdays of a tough farming life in the old country still lingered. But nostalgia never did enter her worldview. She lived for and in the present, which is another reason why her endless keening after my grandfather's death proved so difficult. My forward-looking grandmother was now stuck in the past, unable and even unwilling to leave. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Italian American podcast. Tom had so many really interesting angles that we kind of dove into on his writing and his, and his background and his history growing up Italian American. Remember that you can go to Italian American podcast.com forward slash Godfather effect, all lowercase, all one word. And you can kind of get a recap of the episode 
some of the links, some of the things we talked about with NIAF, everything will be there for you. And you can also sign up for our newsletter on our website and you'll get new episodes delivered to your inbox and be the first to know about any new resources that we're creating for Italian Americans. Again, that's ItalianAmericanPodcast.com. Dolores, why don't you tell our listeners how they can connect with us on social media? I would love to. Amici, you can find us on Instagram at Italian American. You can find us on Twitter at ITAL American. That's I T A L American. And you can find us on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. A presto. Yeah.